0: I do want to give you a little disclaimer a little warning at the beginning of the sermon some of what i say is going to be so counterintuitive that you're going to think that sounds wrong it's going to be so countercultural that you're going to feel like i don't think what patrick is saying is true but i'm going to do my best to just point you to scripture but i think there's going to be dis- some discomfort with us this morning so let me start off trivia question this is not a trick question In the Gospels, what group of people are typically the bad guys? Pharisees. Yeah, it's not a trick question. It's very simple. The Pharisees are usually the bad guys. Now, some of you are superstar Sunday school students, and you're like, no, 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 actually the real bad guy is Satan or something like that. Yes, I get that. We know that Satan's the big bad guy. Satan is Darth Vader, and the Pharisees are just stormtroopers. We get that. Earlier this week, our small group is talking about Hebrews, and we're always like a little bit behind, you know, um, because the readings don't line up precisely. And so our group was talking about Hebrews, but we had just read the beginning of Luke, and Someone in our group said, hey, if I'm being honest, I actually kind of identify with the Pharisees. And you're like, wait a second, you're not supposed to identify with the Pharisees. That's the bad guy. Maybe unless you're some you know, teen going through an antisocial phase. I mean, the Pharisees are the bad guys. But others in the group said, you know, actually, to be honest, if I had been around during the time of Christ, I probably would have sided with the Pharisees over Jesus too. If Jesus came rolling in and said, hey, there's a new way. I'm here. I'm the way. I'm the truth of the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I think a lot of us would have been like, "Mm, you're telling me that this whole group of guys who have devoted their entire lives to understanding scripture are wrong. And you, some carpenter, you might have been like, I don't know. I think the Pharisees might be right on this one. I actually think that realizing that we have some Pharisee-like tendencies is a healthy thing. I think that's kind of a healthy thing. I think every one of us should be aware of the fact that we've got a little Pharisee inside us that sometimes wants to come out and wag our finger at everybody and you know, show off our technical knowledge and make sure everybody is in line with what we think is right. I think we have a little Pharisee-like tendency in us. And I think it's good to realize that because the gospel is absolutely for the broken, for the hurting, for the messed up people, but the gospel is also for the people who act like they've got it all together. The gospel is definitely for the unrighteous. It's good news for the unrighteous. But it's also good news for the self-righteous. It's just painful. If you can walk up to Jesus and say, I know I'm no good. I know I'm a sinner. No problem. Jesus has good news for you. But if Jesus has to take you down a couple notches first before you can admit that, it's painful news. The gospel is painful news for the self-righteous person. The smug, the sanctimonious, the holier-than-thou. And I think we all have a little bit of that in us. Self-righteousness is declaring ourselves Righteous. That's what it is. It's declaring ourselves righteous. It's by some arbitrary standard that we've made up, and usually we compare ourselves to somebody else, and we say, I'm righteous because I am better than this other person. So it's using our power and our resources, however small, to elevate ourselves, typically at the expense of somebody else. You know, you remember that story, if you've gotten all the way through Luke uh, 18, there's a story where Jesus tells a parable about a uh, Pharisee, again, a Pharisee, it's going to be the bad guy, heads up, and this, this other guy who just won't hardly even turn his eyes towards heaven. Remember the Pharisee's prayer? He says, I thank God that I am not like this dummy over here, and Jesus talking to the crowd says, who do you think actually went away justified? Now, I know none of us would walk out of here saying, you know, I've declared myself righteous by these standards. We don't put these words to it, but essentially it's happening when we say things like, well, I'm more spiritual than that person because I fill in the blank, or I am more intellectual than that person because I, I am more well-informed because I, I am more well-rounded as a human being because I, and it's always in comparison to somebody else. We do, this, we do this all the time. In fact, you can use the same standard, and you've seen this. I've seen people say, essentially, say, I am more righteous than that person because I go to church every week. And then this person over, over here will say, well, I am separated from tradition. I am enlightened beyond the tradition, and I don't feel like I have to go to church every week to be accepted by God, so I'm better than them. And it's the same exact standard that they're using, using to declare themselves righteous over and above someone else politics have you done that have you thought your approach to politics is so much better than somebody else that everybody that votes or thinks or does that way or accepts that truth is a dummy i am more righteous than them because of what i believe about politics or covid or education or style or or achievement or family And undiagnosed self-righteousness, if you're sitting there thinking, well, this isn't me, undiagnosed self-righteousness tends to show up in a couple different ways. It tends to show up in thoughts that start like this. When you're looking at somebody else and you say, I would never. If you look at somebody else and say, I would never... The next thought is probably gonna be a self-righteous declaration. I would never be so insecure and presumptuous like other people I know to think I'm more righteous than other people. Well, you, you just did it. <laughs> you just did it. I think the way that self-righteousness really shows up in our lives is our reaction to being told we are wrong. How do you react? when you're told you're wrong? Do any of you say, oh man, I'm just so excited to learn something new. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to grow as a human being. Or does every defensive mechanism in your body go off and you want to fight? Even, this is how bad it is. Even when we begin to realize, oh, I am wrong, we still fight to prove ourselves right. That is self-righteousness. Why does this happen? Well, because your sense of rightness or righteousness has been threatened. Now, some of you are like, wait a second, Patrick, you just jumped way in the deep end with all this self-righteousness stuff. Aren't we supposed to be talking about the gospel of Luke? Well, we are on a journey through these, the New Testament, and this week we are in Luke. Now, some of you read Luke, and you're like, that feels a little bit like what I read a few weeks ago in Matthew. I mean, it's pretty similar stuff. Didn't we cover this? I mean, you've been binge-watching Netflix, and when you have the beginning of the show, and they say, they give you the recap, this happened last week on this show, and Netflix gives you that button to skip, you skip it. So you may have been tempted to skip through some of Luke because you're like, we just read a lot of this in Matthew. This This is the second of four stories about Jesus. It's all the same. Can't we skip this? There's actually a ton of differences. Um, In fact, let's start looking in chapter 1, verse 1. I want to point out just a few of the differences to you. And that's actually where we're going to camp out a lot today, is in the differences. This is what Luke says at the beginning of his gospel. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Many. Yes, we know many. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and others. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first, from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word with this in mind i myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning i decided to write an orderly account for you most excellent theophilus so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught so right off the bat notice there's a couple things we are reading an account of someone who was not an eyewitness they're an investigative reporter which is kind of cool someone sat down with eyewitnesses and said hey tell me how this happened tell me what jesus said here in fact In Luke, you're going to hear stuff that a person was thinking, which means Luke was probably sitting across from Mary saying, tell me about what it was like the night that you gave birth to Jesus. Tell me what was happening. Tell me the circumstances. You're hearing from somebody's first person perspective from someone who's asking questions. And I think that's pretty cool. He's interviewing people. And we'll see some of that in just a second. Luke is the only non-Jewish author of the New Testament, the only one that we know of. Uh, all, all the other ones had a Hebrew background, were raised in Hebrew society, Hebrew law. Luke it wasn't, his name is in Hebrew, but he also talks about things like their customs or their language in other places. So Matthew's full of details that a Hebrew believer would find insightful. Luke's full of description that a non-Hebrew believer, us, by the way, would find helpful. Luke is the only biographer of Jesus to write a sequel. That's kind of cool. You know how many unnecessary movie sequels are coming now? It just feels like everything has a sequel or a prequel. Well, Luke was the only one to do this. He was the original, and he wrote a sequel to the book of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts, and they're very much tied together, parts one and two. And by the way, by sheer volume, like by, by verses, Luke is the most prolific author in the New Testament. So like his Luke acts is more than what Paul wrote in all those letters, even though Paul has more letters. By the way, did anybody this week notice like you're reading Luke chapter one and you're like, there are 80 verses in this chapter where it just keeps going and going. And you're like, man, I gave myself five minutes here and we're like on verse 79. Come on, Luke, wrap it up the other thing i want to draw our attention to is the key concepts in luke are really in the differences really in the differences there's a ton that's only in luke in fact your favorite stories about jesus are likely in luke like if you like the story of the good samaritan and the prodigal son that's only luke no other gospel writers interviewed the right person to talk about that Uh, those are only in luke and there's very uh, quite a few familiar stories that are only show up in Luke. But there's even in the stories that we know in the other gospels, Luke has details that really stand out. And if you rush through, you're going to miss them. And this is one of the things we have kind of an instinct to take all four gospels and just kind of smush them together. And we have, so we can have one clear account. But the problem is, is Matthew had a specific purpose and Mark had a specific purpose and Luke has a specific purpose. John has a specific purpose. And if you just kind of crunch them all together, you lose the nuance and the importance of what that particular author was trying to do. And I'm going to try to draw your attention to a few of those things uh, today let me give you just a quick example chapter one so if you haven't gotten very far in your reading that's fine Uh, in chapter one you'll notice I mean what's the gospel of Luke about who's the main character in the gospel of Luke not a trick question Jesus. You guys are really hesitant. Like, uh, Jesus? I think, yeah, Jesus! We're at church on Sunday morning. The answer is always Jesus. It's Jesus. He's the main character. So Luke starts out with this little preamble about like, hey, I'm going to write an account, and he writes to this guy. We don't know who he is, Theophilus, but it means lover lover of knowledge of God. God. Um, And he's talking about we don't know if he's a real person. We don't know if he's just a concept. We don't know if he paid Luke to do this investigation. We have no idea. But as he begins the story, who's the first character you see in the story? Close. You guys are getting close. Zechariah, like, wait, why are we starting with Jesus' uncle? What's going on there? And so, if this were a movie, it'd be like, hey, everybody, let's learn about Jesus. We're going to watch a documentary about Jesus. And it fades from black. And you see this elderly man, and he's working in a temple. The detail of him lighting incense makes me think that Luke was actually talking to Zechariah. And there's this whole conversation where this angel shows up to Zechariah and says, hey, surprise, you're going to have a baby. And Zechariah, remember what his response was? He's like, prove it, man. And the angel's like, I'm an angel. (laughs) What more proof do you need? In fact, you need to talk less, smile more. You're not going to be able to talk for the rest of the chapter because you didn't get it. And then before, so he goes back to Elizabeth and has to explain somehow, write it down on a chalkboard that he had this amazing vision. And then it cuts to another story, another person. There's Mary. And what happens to Mary? There's an angel, same angel, surprise baby. But what's the crucial difference in the two stories? Zechariah said, Come on, prove it. You think you think I'm just gonna believe I'm sitting here in the temple lighting this incense in the not the holy of holies, but in the holy place? You think I'm gonna b- believe that my wife's supposed to have a baby? By the way, this ties into all kinds of Old Testament stuff. It sounds very familiar. Story of Abraham, story of Hannah in the Old Testament. Lots of lots of Old Testament references. And he says, Yeah, prove it. And what does Mary say to the angel? She says, I am your servant. And Luke, without highlighting it, without directly saying it, he's drawing our attention to the fact that this elderly priest did not get it. Just because you're a priest serving in the temple and you've been around a long time doesn't mean you're, you're going to get it. And this young, unmarried virgin gets it. That's what Luke is trying to draw our attention to. Don't presuppose that you have insight because of who you are. Who are you more like? Now, Matthew, when we read his story of the, the beginnings of Jesus, Matthew says stuff like, and this happened to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy. Luke's not doing that. Luke doesn't say that in, in, in that story at all. But what Luke does is Luke invites us to ask the question, who are we more like? Are we more like Zechariah, presupposing we've got everything figured out and skeptical of the angel talking to us? Or are we more like Mary? I I am your servant. That's what Luke is inviting us to do. And I think that's genius. Very, very, very cool stuff. All right, so Luke is essentially four chunks of Scripture. Chunks is a theological term. It's four chunks of Scripture. That one through four is the beginnings. Um, the four through ten, roughly, is ministry. And this is stuff that's very similar to Matthew and Mark. In fact, by the way, don't tell Luke. I told you this. Luke plagiarized from Mark. There are sections that are just verbatim from Mark. Uh, so, yikes. Whoops. I guess it wasn't as bad. But Luke was using Mark as a source for his investigation and then in chunk number three this is a whole journey where luke says and jesus headed off to jerusalem and then he doesn't arrive at jerusalem for 10 chapters and this chapter or this third chunk is where we get a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff that's very unique to luke and then the fourth section is just the endings and, and it's kind of interesting the most technical description of jesus death is in luke Does anybody have any guesses as to why the most medically technical description of Jesus' death would be in Luke? Luke's a doctor, doctor. but we don't find that out. Luke doesn't say, hey, I'm a doctor. We find that out from Paul in the book of Colossians much later that Luke's a doctor. And so you can see when he describes Jesus healing somebody, he's like, oh, and this guy had this medical issue. And he uses the definite Greek medical term for some of the the, uh, things that were going on, which is pretty cool. Alright, so what's, what's Luke up to? What's Luke doing? What's Luke about? Why did Luke write a different account? Why don't, why don't we just have one? Well, Luke highlights all these stories where the bad guys are the heroes. And all these stories where the self-proclaimed heroes are the kind of the bumbling bad guys. When I was a kid growing up, the bad guy in every movie was Eastern European and communist That was always the bad guy. So if you're watching Rocky IV, the big bad guy was, you know, the boxer from Russia, the USSR. Those are always the bad guys. In, In Jesus' telling of the story, every time you see the Pharisees show up, the good guys, according to culture, they're presented as these guys that just don't get it. And every time you see somebody who's on the margins of society, Jesus makes a note and makes a point to stop and elevate them. That happens every single time. So Jesus is always taking down the self-righteous and he's always elevating the humble that's what he's doing throughout the book so, yes, other Gospels throw a lot of shade at the Pharisees, but Luke is on another level. Let me show you just a, a snapshot of what's going on in the book of Luke. These are just all the references as I sat down every time I read through and I found something where Jesus was taking somebody down or elevating somebody. This happened over and over and over again. And this is just through chapter 19. I didn't even do the, the crucifixion section because it was just wouldn't fit on the screen. I mean, you can barely read that now, but it's over and over and over again. He's got entire speeches that are just essentially a TED talk of how bad the pharisees are that's the whole thing because the pharisees were like we have come we have arrived we have the truth and jesus is like oh yeah are you sure about that you guys are blind and you're leading the blind you're all going to end up in the ditch and there's just over and over again it's like every single page of the book and there's so much in luke i would love to highlight there's parts of the sermon that i wrote out and i had all ready to go and i thought just we just don't have enough time uh for example there's this amazing crazy confusing section in luke chapter 12 where Jesus says, hey, do you guys think I came to bring peace on earth? And the audience is like, yeah, because literally that's what the angel said in Luke chapter two, he's come to bring peace on earth. And Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sort of division. And a lot of people struggle with that idea. I just heard from someone this week that was like, this is one of the reasons I just wonder if God's even real because why would, why would Jesus say I'm coming to bring division? I would love to talk about that. There's this amazing story about a manager, kind of an accountant who cheats his boss and, and Jesus points to this story as like, wow, how cool, how great is this manager who cheats his boss? That gives people fits. Like, what in the world is that story doing in the Bible? You should be like this accountant who cheats his, what is going on? So we can't talk about all that. <laughs> I'll just bring it up and just let it simmer for you guys. But uh, Luke paints this version of Jesus whose every move reflects this subversive and counterintuitive way of seeing and interacting with the world every move, everything Jesus did. So you could not be around Jesus without seeing this, without noticing this. Um, and there's, there's one particular dinner that Luke highlights, and he gives us a ton of detail about, and it's incredibly awkward. And I think it would be helpful for us to dig into that just a little bit to see what Luke is trying to do throughout the text. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Jesus is the guest in this dinner. This Pharisee has invited him in. And there's already been an awkward moment because there's all these conflicts about can you heal on the Sabbath, which, why is that even a conflict? But that's already been going on, and that's already happened. It's already caused tension in the room. But by the time you get to verse 7, Jesus feels like there's not enough awkwardness at this dinner. There's not enough tension at this meal, so I'm going to really amp it up. And verse 7, he decides to pick on the guests. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. And it's not even really a parable. It's just like an insult, basically, but whatever. Verse 8, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. Now, I don't know that that's a practice we have. I don't know if you've ever been to... um a wedding feast and thought, man, I'm really bummed that I didn't get to sit at the head table and I'm going to try to edge my way in, you know, it's got your name. It's just not really, it's a cultural difference. But he says, when you've been invited to a wedding feast, don't take that place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. So you may not be the top dog at this, this meal. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, hey, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to gather up your stuff and you will have to wander to the, the back of the table, the back of the room, the farthest from the head, near the door where it's cold every time somebody goes in and out because you've got to give this person your seat. But, verse 10, when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." So imagine you're a guest sitting there, and Jesus is like, oh, by the way, you guys at the head table, what you did, that was dumb. You shouldn't have done that, because you're not the coolest person here. You should have taken the lower seat. I mean, imagine what that would have felt like to be a guest in this room. So I'm sure there's this awkward tension, and Jesus is not ready to leave this topic. He goes on, verse 12, and then he's insulted the guests. Let's insult the hosts now. Then Jesus said to his host, hey, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends. Don't invite your brothers or sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I know we read that, and I think we kind of cruise past it because it's culturally different. We don't have the same... Um, social trappings as they do. So when Jesus calls these things out, we're kind of like, well, what, is that? what does that mean to us? But what we have to understand is that Jesus is upending social norms. And this is very crucial. The means by which they elevated themselves were different in the first century. But we in this room, as Christians, still struggle with the same desires to elevate ourselves. We just use 21st century norms. So we can sit here and say, well, I've never taken the head seat at a table, so I must be good. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm about to say things that are going to sound counterintuitive to the degree that you're going to think, I don't know that Patrick is right. Um, There's a lot of things in life that are very, that seem wrong, and some of you are going to fact check me, which is great, by the way. Does anybody know that the plural of the word beef is beeves. B-E-E-V-E-S, Beeves. I, I dare you to go use that in some setting. Yeah, what kind of, uh, kind of beeves were used for this hamburger that I'm eating? People are gonna look at you and say that that's not right. In fact, some of you pulled out your phones just now to check me because you're like, that's not right. That cannot be right. And what you're gonna discover is that that is technically right, although it may be socially weird <laughs> to do. Um, This is also not gonna sound right. The National Transportation Safety Board did a review of aviation disasters from 1983 to 1995. 95% of people survive airplane accidents. Did you know that? 95% of people survive airplane accidents. Yeah, go ahead, pull out that phone, fact check me, because that doesn't sound right. You're like, nah, that can't be, 95%. Even the major disasters, 95% of people overall. Um, How about this? You know, and I, I could care less if you think that I'm right. No, how many of you are sitting there like, Patrick, it's not I could care less. It's I couldn't care less because if you could care less, it means there's less to care and you said it wrong. That's not right. All right, well, whatever. Irregardless, I don't want to hear <laughs> your objections. There's things that are wrong and sound right and right and sound wrong. And some of what we're going to talk about here in just a moment, I, I know are going to feel a little bit challenging to you. Our culture gives us these unquestioned presumptions about life. We don't even challenge them. We don't even think about them. We take them from our parents. We pass them to our children because we just think this is the way life works. And, and it's, it's asking ourselves questions in any given situation, questions like, well, how can I get ahead? How can I gain an advantage how can i network so that i will have the right connections so that i will get the good job and the career i want how can i maximize my profits in this industry how can i make myself stand out from anybody around me in this job interview how can i strategically position myself to get a leg up and questions like that and many more are so intrinsic in our culture that we don't even we don't even stop to say, should I? is that how I should be thinking about jobs and careers and life? And Jesus said, what if you abandon that whole framework? What if you just upended all that idea and you said, how can I do something for someone that could not possibly repay me? How can I serve someone in a way that they could not possibly benefit me at all? In fact, maybe I could do it secretly so that they wouldn't even know who served them. He asked questions like, how can I network with people that make me look bad? How can I be around people that will lower my reputation? That's the kind of question Jesus asked. How can I maximize my losses to benefit someone else? How can I strategically position myself to give someone else an advantage even over me? Now this stuff is so different, it doesn't even sound right. It doesn't sound right. At uh, the summer camp that we work at, um, a lot of people volunteer their time up there. Every summer we hire college students and we have them come up and work for the summer. And it's, I don't know, eight or nine weeks and it's not, it's not, it's not very lucrative. You could, you could probably work at McDonald's and make more money. That's not why we have college students come up. You're going to be spending uh, all summer with 12-year-olds that don't ever want to sleep and have fun with that. One summer, I'm talking to a, a kid who comes from a very godly, upright, church-going family that cares about Jesus. Not somebody here, just in case you, throw, you, know, you think I'm throwing somebody into the bus. But he said, uh, my dad doesn't want me to be here this summer. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Your dad doesn't want me to be here? You to be here? And he's like, yeah, he doesn't want me to be here. He he thinks I should be getting a head start on my career. He's upset that I'm not interning at a corporation this summer because he's worried that I'm getting behind all my other classmates. They're gaining an advantage on me. He wants me to spend the summer advancing my career rather than serving 12-year-olds. Now, I, I say that, and I'm like, well, listen, you know, you got to honor your parents, but I'm glad you made the choice that you did. But I think there's a lot of us in here that would say, you know, I kind of think that dad's right, because you got to get a head start on your career. If you want to achieve, and if you want to get ahead, and if you want to have the best job and the best promotion, and if you want to make the most money, you got to do those things. You got to get ahead. You got to push yourself ahead. Well, why? Because you need to buy a bigger house. Well, why? So you can put more stuff in it. Well, why? So you got, because I think that's what, Wait. I don't know why. And there's a point at the end of those questions that we start to realize there's no substantive answer. There's no substantive answer. Those questions are only about life here and now. They're not taking into account eternity. And Jesus at every single turn challenged those assumptions about life. I've told you this before, although maybe it's been long enough. Long enough, people have forgotten. But my parents, when I was 11 years old, they packed up all our stuff and they said, "Let's uh, let's go overseas because we want to tell people about Jesus." And it made my grandparents so upset. They were so mad. They were saying, "You're putting." our grandchildren in danger. They were so mad to the degree that my grandfather on the phone told my dad, he's like, I'm going to drive down there and I'm going to shoot you, he specified, with a shotgun. You know, and it's a lot of bluster, it's a lot of silliness, but that's how mad he was thinking that what you were doing is so wrong. Why is it wrong? Well, because safety is the paramount thing. Safety is the most important thing. Proximity is the most important thing. Making sure your kids get a good education is the most important thing. And all those things are fine, but they're not more important than this eternal calling that we've been given. And Jesus, sitting at a meal, says, you even need to think about the seating arrangement. And you need to think about what it would mean to humble yourself at this banquet. What would it be to humble yourself at your work? What would it be to humble yourself in your classroom? What would it be to humble yourself in your neighborhood? What would it be to do those things on every level of our lives? I think that's the, the, what Jesus is trying to get us to ask. I think godly, wonderful, church-going people just buy into the cultural assumptions that we've been given. They're just the air we breathe, and we don't stop and think about what have we had, what have we been given, no matter how small. What little thing have we been given that we can leverage to somebody else's benefit? These things are so ingrained in our cultural presumptions that it almost sounds wrong. I, I mean, I, I feel like I feel the challenge myself. I actually struggled with the wording of how we describe this counterintuitive way of living. And the best I could come up with, if you've got a better way, it, 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 tell me. The best I could come up with is gospel life. Gospel life. And it's this it's in every situation. No matter how small, rejecting the temptation to use my power and resources to elevate myself, but instead leveraging that power and those resources. Doesn't, again, it doesn't matter how small. I mean, even seating arrangements at a banquet is the illustration Jesus used to elevate others. Now, some of you are like, okay, Patrick, <laughs> I like church. I like singing. It's all fine. But this is getting a little radical. This is getting a little dangerous. You're telling me You're telling me to make choices that might hurt my career advancement? I don't know. What do you think Jesus would say? You're telling me to downsize? Is that what you're telling me to do? Sell my house and get a smaller house? I don't know. I'll let the Spirit convict you of that. I don't know. But it is pretty radical. It's even a little dangerous. Well, well, what are you saying, Patrick? What if I have to put myself at financial risk to do what you seem to be proposing Jesus is saying here? I don't know it seems like jesus used this paradigm to the degree that it actually walked him to the cross and he died i don't know how dangerous it's got to get i don't know i have no idea this just reading to you some scripture here viewing life this way literally got jesus killed and i know we're hesitant i know we want to avoid death (laughs) i get that but jesus is trying to upend the way that we think because life is not just about Life. Self righteousness wants me to leverage my power to elevate me. Gospel living wants me to expend my power elevating others. Our ego hates this. The battle against self righteousness is a painful one. It's a painful one because we have spent most of our time, energy, and mental resources elevating ourselves. And Jesus is coming along and saying, hey, why don't you do that for everybody else? It's a painful thing to do. It begs this question. What do we see in ourself, in me, in our us right now that needs to be turned upside down, given away, or denied? Because there is something for you. It may not be seating arrangements at a banquet. It may not be selling your house. It may not be any of those things. But what do you see in yourself right now that needs to be turned upside down, given away, or denied? Here's, here's the thing. I think a lot of us are really excited about Jesus until it gets to this point, this point right here. This is the point where we're like, eh, I'm, it, where's, the, where's the JV version of Christianity? Because I'm pretty good with that. I don't need, this is, this is too intense, Patrick. <laughs> this is too much. You're not talking about like, oh, I'm just going to pray that I get a little bit more patient. You're talking about lifestyle change, Patrick. Maybe. What would Jesus say? I don't know. I think that's a question you have to wrestle with. What in your life needs to be turned upside down, given away, or denied? That's where Christianity, that's where the rubber really meets the road. And we can continue to exist. We can continue to kind of float along and feel pretty good, but not really take any of this seriously. And I don't know. I don't know. That's not what I want. That's not what I want for you. It's not what I want for me. So maybe there's some choices that you have to wrestle with. I'm not going to tell you what to do. And the good news is that the gospel is for the unrighteous. But the gospel is also for us who struggle with self-righteousness. That's me. I'm a Pharisee. And the gospel's for me as well. What do we see in ourselves right now that can be turned upside down, given away, or denied?